I'm Dr. Lynn Carr, and please introduce yourself in the chat or on social media. Today, I am interviewed on the A Moment with Eric Fleming podcast, and I'm answering questions such as, is George Santos pathological? Are Caucasian politicians different from African-American politicians? And can an introvert be a successful politician? So listen in as I answer these questions and more with Mr. Eric Fleming. Now, a little bit about Eric is that he is the former director of policy for the ACLU in Mississippi. He's also a former member of the Mississippi House of Representatives and a two-time STEM nominee for the United States Senate. So listen in, and for this to not be a one-sided or a one-time conversation, please remember to also give your thoughts or questions in the comment section below. So here we go. All right. Dr. Renee Carr, how are you doing, Doc? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, glad I was able to catch you. Uh, yes. And we're, uh, we're able to kick off this new year. Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, So explain to the audience your application of political psychology. So everything that happens in our society is based off of human interactions and human perceptions of those interactions. And so what I do is I apply psychology, which is the understanding of how humans think, how they feel, how they act either individually or as groups and applying that to social issues. And it could also go for political campaigns for the messaging, but mainly on a bigger platform to just address social issues. And that could be understanding how does human traffic um, happening? We're talking about COVID. How can you increase uh, the use of people wearing masks without using the psychology of fear, but more of motivation? Or how can you understand that you're trying to have a bipartisan issue pass, but there's so many personality issues that are with ego and everything else and political power, how does that political power or those individual personalities, how do those factors psychologically impede progress either at the party level or at the state level? So do you primarily work with local legislators? When I say local, I mean state, or do you, do you have congressional clients? Uh, yes, for both. Okay. And also like more and also like national agencies as well. Yeah. Cause I, I, I was, I'm interested about the congressional clients. I don't want you to reveal names, mm-hmm. but, right. um, considering the dynamics <laughs> that happen, uh, mm-hmm. I, I would, I would pray that every member would have somebody like you at their disposal. Um, you would think, (laughs) I mean, because I mean, we, we're in a really, really tough situation right now. Um, as far as, uh, an immediate crisis is happening with the, uh, immigrants from, from Venezuela, especially those that are seeking, uh, seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. And it's not good for governors of states, especially the governor of Texas to be shipping these people off wherever right, especially right. this time of year uh yeah you know so but there, there there's no there there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel for uh our congressional leaders to come to a resolution to deal with immigration and so just just real quickly how would you 
you know, you had a client, they say, Hey, I need some help with this particular issue. How do you Mm -hmm. guide them through that process to reach that, what you call bipartisan agreement? Right. So I would work with uh, the governor and working as far as the immigration issues or how it may affect them economically and also on their social resources. So I would address it, but I would first address the humanity of that, um, the governor or a congressional member, because what really happens is that people often forget that everyone is pretty much an immigrant and it's more of a selfish approach. And it's a selfish approach related to your political power or your fear of loss of power or your lack of concern for humanity and then it's basic selfishness. So I would want to address what are the underlying reasons for your resistance? Because it may not just be as simple as, oh, well, my party doesn't support immigration, so therefore I don't. But there's a reason for it. And I can give the greatest solution in the world, but if you have a fear of being rejected from your political party, because that's tied to your personal economic welfare, then nothing, the best solution externally won't really matter because your individual needs of fear and belonging to your political group and being accepted by your party will far outweigh it. So I address or I identify, well, what are the reasons for wanting this particular outcome or for not wanting another outcome? And then once I understand what their their individual psychological influences are, then I would help create a strategy that's also beneficial for them, for their career, and then for the individuals who are involved, such as the immigrants and even the um, the social systems or the, the departmental agencies in that state that are going to go to have the pressure from that. Yeah. And that, and that's pretty comprehensive and that's something that mm-hmm. uh, is totally needed, but having been in a position myself being elected, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the things that you were saying, especially initially uh, as far as like getting into the mindset of that elected official, would you agree that there are a lot of public officials that naturally have that skill set to uh, get their colleagues to do certain things? Well, every profession attracts a personality, a specific personality. You can even look, an easy example is looking at the military. Whoever is attracted to the Marines will not also be attracted to the Air Force. And so if you are attracted to dentistry, you're not going to want to be in politics. And so when you're in politics, you are already somewhat a person who is more of an introvert than an extrovert. I mean, more of an extrovert than an introvert. And you also have some political and social savvy, um, not necessarily manipulation, but you know how to work the crowd. And so you may have good social skills. But what I find is that a lot of people may have a good intention to go into politics to help change their state or change the world, but they lack the actual understanding of how human variables will impede their progress, even within themselves. So no, I don't think everyone has that. And that's one reason why I'm grateful that I am able to be a resource because many people don't, but they assume that because they are so socially connection rich, or they have such high social skills, or they can manipulate, that they believe that those will take them far, but it really doesn't. And so that's usually when they may only seek me out because it's all hit the fan, and now it's a crisis that they can't get out of, that their 
their slick words or their connections can't get them out of. So then we need a real solution, not just a superficial one. Right. And, and I apologize I, I, that if I if I made it seem like all people that get elected. No, I meant there are some that have that skill set, mm-hmm. but not everybody. But but yeah, I, that's right. Yeah. So. Let me ask you this question. Is what is the psychological makeup of an African American politician as opposed to a white politician or is there really a difference since we're talking about people that run for office? Well, there are differences because not every African American person is the same and also that you may have someone who is a Democrat or a Republican. So they would have different beliefs um, for, for you know, that would impact, one, which party they would choose and then how they were a character or a role within that party. So I wouldn't say that there is one standard of black people in politics do this and black people in politics do that. Now, you know, what I can say is, unfortunately, when it comes to my services, I find that more black politicians are resistant to my services than my than their white male counterparts. And I think it's because what I find, even with my corporate clients, a lot of black people, prefer, a lot of successful black people, especially in politics and especially at the local level, they prefer to be big fish in small ponds. And so as long as they can walk into the room or go into the reception or go visit a church or be known in their state or in their district, they seem to be very satisfied and very comfortable with that level of notoriety and with that level of external success. And they're okay with that. Whereas their white male counterparts are really trying to conquer the world. I think it's okay. You know what mindset is involved with that. And I recognize my limitations. So I'm going to get Dr. Carr. Now, as a psychologist, there are variables such as white males not seeing me as a black female as a threat. So that's one reason why, one, they're open to, you know, their own aspiration needs and me being a solution for that. But I'm also not their peer with whom I would be a a political or professional threat. And so that's what I that's the only trend that I've actually seen when it comes to black politicians. Hmm. Well, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I when I was in, in elected office, I was in Mississippi. And so mm-hmm. in Mississippi, if you're an elected official, especially at any level within the state, if you're in the legislature or a statewide official, people in Mississippi give you a whole lot of deference and respect. Now, there's some familiarity with that because they like to call you by your first name rather than your title. <laughs> but they give you a lot of respect. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I could go, I, I represented primarily Jackson, Mississippi. But if I went to the Delta or went to the Gulf Coast to speak, it was, I got the red carpet treatment, you know, and mm-hmm. and, I, and mm-hmm. I've been in some other states. I grew up in Illinois. I, I'm living in Georgia now. They don't, they don't do that <laughs> in, the, in those mm-hmm. states. They don't. You know, okay, so you're a legislator, great, and we're glad that you showed mm-hmm. up for our event. But in Mississippi, mm-hmm. they they hold it, and especially an African American, uh, they mm-hmm. hold they hold those officials in high regard. So I can I can see where 
people can get that kind of mentality, that big fish in a small pond. I always mm-hmm. use the analogy, the one-eyed man in the, in the land of the blind, you know. Uh, especially, <laughs> yeah. especially when it comes to your colleagues within the within the legislature, and I, and I guess I'll kind of address that in some of the later questions. But okay, um, what do you what what has to be the proper mindset of an elected official that wants to make a significant impact for their constituents? Being able to accept that they do not know everything and although they have been successful and are more of an alpha type personality, recognizing that they don't have all the answers and just being open to that. Can you be an alpha type personality and be an introvert? Yes, because an introvert doesn't mean that you are shy. It just means that you have high cortical arousal level so that you're already naturally stimulated. And so you don't need a whole bunch of external stimulation, bungee jumping and going to big events. You can just be okay with your small people or your small crowd. For example, Barbara Streisand is a high introvert, but she can still go speak in crowds, but you won't see her every weekend, you know, at the bar or something. Right. Okay. Cause my dad always, uh, marveled at the fact that me being an introverted person that I even would get into politics. And so that, that always just, that always just tickled him that I was not only yeah. got in, but was somewhat successful at it. So uh, that's a good, well, you're that's also a, more likely to listen to people because you don't have time to be around a whole bunch of people just trying to kiss up or to just be around the fame and the spotlight of being a politician you as an introvert are more likely to want to listen so I can get the meat of it and then go solve the problem. And then your solutions and your success with those solutions then get you more ingrained and more loyalty. And that's what is probably the foundation. Obviously you do have a great track record as well, but that also could make the introversion not much of a negative, but more of a positive because you don't need a lot of the rah, rah, and puffing up. You want to focus on the meat and the bones and then you go fix it. Wow. I should have had you about 20 years ago. Anyway, <laughs> around, um, what is the best advice that you can? Oh no. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and ask it since I started. What is the best advice you can give someone who is seeking to run for public office? Um, what are your reasons for wanting to be in public office. It's always a buzzword to say people over politics, but what are your internal motivations? So if you are someone who is a high achiever, but you also have an imposter syndrome, your guilt may make you not as impactful as someone who is a lower achiever, but has a strong passion for helping people. If you're only wanting it because you feel as if you can use your political office to then navigate afterward contracts for your corporate or your other adventures, then focus on, okay, well, what are your true aspirations? So when I work with an individual, either on a political campaign or usually they're already in office now, but in the beginning, my goal was, okay, well then what is your end point? Do you want to be POTUS or do you want to go from city council to Congress? Like, what is your end game? And then I can work from a long-term strategy. But if I find out or it's, you know, revealed that, well, my really, my end game is to just have a job that also has some notoriety, 
then be okay with saying that that's all it is, but then recognize that that may not last that long as far as you being reelected. So then what are your true motivations for wanting to do it? Be honest with those and then be very smart and strategic with everything that you say, everything that you write and everything that you do so that if nothing else happens, you make very little impact, you can at least have a legacy of being with integrity and consistency to what you said on your campaign trail to when you left office. So I don't know how familiar you are with this George Santos situation, right? Mm -hmm. But I got to see the guy that he beat uh, Mm, on the news. And when you were talking about somebody that's a high achiever or somebody that looks for the rah-rah, as mm-hmm, opposed to mm-hmm. somebody that's a little more low key, but could be more substantive. Right. I, I you know, I'm, I was sitting there and I was sitting, I was trying to figure out, I said, so George Santos basically lied about everything about him, but right. it was something about him when he came to a voter, as opposed mm-hmm. to the other guy who was straight up about his background, but mm-hmm. didn't get that 50 plus one. Now, I know you haven't dealt with you. You haven't been in Long Island. I haven't been in Long Island. So I don't know exactly what the presentation was. But Mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking that Santos, even though he was uh, masquerading Mm -hmm. (laughs) as somebody, was able to convince a voter, hey, look, I'm your best option to represent you in Congress as opposed to the older more sincere gentleman. Well, yeah. Go ahead. Well, when you're a pathological liar, you get very good at visual cues, social cues, environmental cues on what you need to say to get your desired result. So what he did is he went to individuals. This is me just using a, um, uh, you know, a psychological profiling of Santos. So by being a pathological liar, then the profile will be that you'll say whatever is needed and you're very savvy at picking up on social cues. Like at the circus, they can guess your age because you give clues. And so they are very savvy and intuitive on recognizing what do I need to say or what will most people want to hear? And because I am so savvy, I can make them think that I care about them. And when it comes to politics, voters would vote on, do I like the person? And if you can be a likable person because you lie about who you are, then that's going to get you the vote. Yeah. And and that's why I was explaining to some folks, they said, well, how could this dude get elected? I said, because he he out campaigned the other guy. It doesn't matter if he made up everything about himself, even his name. Right. Because I Mm -hmm. I, I don't. Did you? Well, I'm sure you've watched it, but I'm not sure. Uh, this movie, The Distinguished Gentleman with Eddie Murphy. You remember seeing that? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I saw that. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, you know, vote for the name you know. And that's all I kept <laughs> thinking about when they started, when this Santos thing came up. It was just like, mm-hmm. vote for the name you know. Vote for the name you're comfortable with as opposed to, right. you know, anything really substantive about it. So Exactly. Yeah, and I, and I, and I told people, there's nothing you can do now. And and the one thing he, he, he is telling the truth about is, in a few days, he's going to be sworn as a member of Congress. So he can say he did do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I just had to but ask you that. Shows, 
Yeah, it also shows how gullible our society is because people believe that people are really who they present themselves to be on social media. And so if you are being consistent in that, you can say that you are, you know, the mayor of Chocolateville. And if you say it enough and have a post about it, people will start believing you and then endorsing you for that. So, you know, again, being a pathological liar, you're very savvy and skilled at being able to say what people want them to say and you're very personable and charming but all of that is really a lie but it's the lie of being cared about that makes it so attractive to voters all right so when a politician is facing a crisis Mm -hmm. what should be in their game plan to address it and just just a generic kind of strategy that that they should deal with? Um, when they're facing a crisis, one, they should not be the spokesperson for that crisis because they may say the wrong thing and that soundbite will be remembered. But before they say anything, first identify what really is the truth. Okay. So I violated I was trying that. to keep it short for you. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I violated that one. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've, any kind of controversy I've I've had to deal with uh, you know, mm-hmm. and being a state legislator, I didn't have like staff. Right. So, yeah. you know, I had to be the one to uh, address the media with it. And I guess I was fortunate. I didn't say anything, uh, mm-hmm. you know, further damaging, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's the first thing is get somebody else to talk for you. So y'all yeah, guys at least listening. In the beginning. Yeah, in the beginning, because in the beginning, you may have to have an immediate response, but you don't want to be the person who is the target of that crisis or the face of that tar- um, for that crisis if you don't have all the information. So if a, spokes- a spokesperson speaks out of turn, that's so much more forgivable than the actual CEO who is being named as part of the crisis. Because once you say it, and then you end up finding out new information, like, then it's like, oh, well, now he's a liar or she's not speaking the truth. We can't trust them. But a spokesperson, oh, okay, they got the wrong information. That's a whole lot easier. I would also advise people, and I work with teams that obviously have these high profile lawyers, but whenever you come out and it's your lawyer representing you, um, politicians don't understand that the public will see a lawyer as a sense of personal defense. So you are protecting yourself from whatever it is that you have done wrong that you now had to go and get an attorney. So if you have someone who is not an attorney as your spokesperson, you are more likely to later be able to maintain your voter loyalty because you didn't come out with the defense of an attorney from the beginning. That that makes sense because... Uh, you know, the natural reaction is, oh, they must have done something wrong because they mm-hmm. got they lawyered up, right? Right, that's right. They lawyered up. Mm-hmm. Um, is your advice best for negotiating through the legislative process or for devising a comprehensive strategy to advance public policy? I would say more of devising a strategy that may involve resolving bipartisan uh, roadblocks, but more of actually resolving the issues, yeah. policy and otherwise. Yeah, because I, I think you kind of answered it in an earlier question because you, you were talking about, you know, how certain things not only impact your colleagues or yourself, but your constituents and, mm-hmm. 
the people mm-hmm. that you're trying to, you know, deal with uh, when we were talking about the immigrant situation. So, right. um, but I guess psychology would work um, in negotiating, right? Oh, definitely. Psycho- negotiation is all about psychology. Even being able to think that you have a win-win, you have to have the psychology of, I was not taken advantage of, I was not vulnerable. All of those are emotional experiences and it's your emotions that are influenced by your interpretation of that experience and that interaction. So you have to be only able to identify what is a win-win if the person feels that they have not been taken advantage of and that they have actually had an advantage over the other person. And those are all psychological variables. So whether you're doing a hostage negotiation or a corporate negotiation, you only negotiate based off of the psychology of wants and needs. So let me ask you this, this question. If it's just a, a blanket question is, mm-hmm. do you think conflict is good? I think conflict is honest because conflict states that we don't agree. It can be healthy and good as far as outcomes if you're willing to acknowledge that we are different, but how can we come to a solution? But if your conflict is just the conflict for the sake of conflict, then that would be maladaptive, non-productive, and then that would not be good. That's just, we're just arguing for the sake of arguing. Right. And I, I think that's, that's kind of where the American public is. They, they think that a lot of the conflict or fighting that they see on TV in the news is, mm-hmm. is nonproductive. Um, and I, and I used right. to explain to people that what you see on the news is really only about two to 5% at the most of what we deal with every, right. every session. The majority of the time we agree on things and, you know, mm-hmm. we kind of hash out details, but you know, that's why we are able to pass bills during a session because we agree on most of the stuff. And it's mm-hmm. like the stuff that gets on the news, that's where we have the long debates and the uh, getting close to the deadline kind of uh, fights and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and people seem to be resist, you know, but people seem to be resistant to conflict. But at the same time, they're attracted to negative campaigning. Right, right. Because that's the drama. And so, you know, in your example just now, as far as people thinking that, that that's all people do, politicians do is argue, there is two different industries that are operating. One, the politicians, but then also the media. And so the media is going to pump up whatever's going to get them the most views, likes, ratings, or clicks. And that will be the, what's the most dramatic. And so that's two different forces that are operating on the human desire to like watch this plane crash or to have a distraction that they can see and be attached to that will help them not have to deal with their own life experiences and life stressors. And it's a way to even make them feel more alive and even a part of the political process by joining in of this argument or believing whatever the arguments are. Right. And I just, you know, people always say that they don't like negative campaigning, but it's an Mm -hmm. effective tool and that's why people still use it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, 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 
Yeah, like you use the analogy about the the train wreck or the car the plane crash. It's mm-hmm. like people <laughs> people are drawn to. They don't like to see. They don't like it that it happened. But if they're in vicinity to see it, they're gonna stop and watch it. You know. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. That's right. So, so um, let me give one more question in. Okay. Do you have clients? evaluate themselves as far as strengths and weaknesses before you advise them or do you evaluate and strategize in real time i i do all of the advising because most of my clients are already high profile and successful so there's they're not going to really acknowledge too many weaknesses to someone like me on day one or month one so i would do my initial assessment working with them you know i'm pretty good at picking up things quickly and seeing their track record and then it would evolve because then what always happens is then they see that, okay, I really can trust her. And then I get more information and that information will then feed how we continue to work together or our long-term strategy. Now I do have to ask them for an upfront, what are the skeletons? What do I need to work out for? I'm look out for, because like with Santos, I want to know if you really were, make it on a chandelier in 1988 let's just know what that is so that when we're talking you can't talk about your platform in 2024 being against alcohol because that would not be with integrity it wouldn't be brand consistent it wouldn't be message consistent so let's just know what all the things are where all the bones are hidden so we can have a platform that is always consistent so like i was saying earlier so no matter what happens if the bottom falls out you can have a legacy that you were always consistent in your messaging and that will build more trust than you saying that you're the saint. And then we find out you were like selling drugs to, you know, five-year-olds. Right. And that, and that's, that sounds kind of like what Herschel Walker ran into with the abortion. Issue. <laughs> I, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and a plethora of other issues. Exactly. Well but I, I didn't want to, <laughs> I mean, a man lost, so I'm not going to pile on him, but I'm just saying that that's a classic yeah. example that, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you're saying you have this one position, but your past dictates and, and his staff knew that. And, that, you know, I, right. I'm one of those people that just believe that the staff is supposed to be your protector, not your, your yes men or women. They're supposed to be the ones to say, you can't say that, or you need to highlight this rather than just let them you know, freestyle. I think that I think his campaign staff did a disservice to him, to be honest. Um, Well, also, you have to think about it wasn't really Herschel who was in charge of this whole machine. There was a lot of other forces that were really okay with having this person being a um, you want a black man in office. Okay, we'll give you a black man in office. So he was more of a tool for a greater um, mission and objective. And so it really didn't matter how inconsistent his words were with his past, um, how he presented himself through his speaking. So it didn't really matter because he was more so a tool to just give the public a, quote, black man so they can go against Warnock. Yeah, but there was another black man in the Republican Party that was, you know, way more qualified yeah, way than Herschel Walker. Right. But he didn't no, have he didn't have the blessing. Right. Right. And That's so right. he got he got pushed to the side. But anyway, <laughs> like I said, that's 
we we've crossed that road. We, uh, we've a whole crossed can of worms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of my behind the scenes look or listen with the Eric Fleming podcast. And although that ends our time for today, please remember, as always, to continue this conversation and to do so using science and love.